Please be seated. I got married in 2004 to my wife, Holly, at St. Mark's Episcopal Cathedral in Seattle. It was my home church. Scandalously, this church employed Lutheran clergy. And so, for our wedding, we had an Episcopal location, and we had two Lutheran pastors uh, for the ceremony. They were Phyllis and Herbert Anderson. And we liked the idea of mixing these two denominations because that's what our marriage would end up looking like. Phyllis was my wife's seminary advisor, and later she went on to become the president of the Lutheran Seminary down here in Berkeley. Herbert was on staff at the cathedral. He was in charge of pastoral care. He had a PhD in pastoral care, and his focus was death. He did our premarital counseling, which was darker than most premarital counseling. Again and again, he returned to the theme of finitude. We, as human beings, are limited by the fact that we are human beings. There's just so much we cannot know about each other, about God, about life and death, and about ourselves. And he said this human condition of living within finitude is what made people pretty neurotic. We cast solutions into the heavens for questions that are very difficult to answer. One of the themes he talked about with marriage was learning to be comfortable with our own limits as individuals and not holding our partners, uh, not, not resenting them for their limits, not trying to change them so that they could do everything we need. Well, here at Christ Church, we have been reminded lately that we suffer from finitude. We are vulnerable. People we love have died. People we love are grieving. And everyone who has been working over in the homeless shelter has gotten very familiar with the limits of human compassion when applied to a mind-bogglingly complex problem. Nevertheless, as human beings, we, we yearn for certainty in life. We also yearn for certainty in death as Christians. That desire for certainty is reflected in the traditional words of the committal service in the Book of Common Prayer. This is at the very end of a funeral. The Book of Common Prayer tells the presider to use these words. Ensure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life. Herbert, who married us, always got stuck on that language. Surety and certainty. Those aren't things that people who are grieving tend to feel. The world is unmoored in grief. And we may hope for surety and certainty, but it is elusive. Herbert 
recommended that as pastors, we try to meet people where they are, not to project our own rigid theology onto them and wallow with them in the mud of uncertainty. That's not just advice for pastors, that's for all of us. Because everyone here in this room, of course, will die. And everyone we know will die as well. A newspaper recently reported on this, theonion.com. World Health Organization officials expressed disappointment Monday at the group's finding that despite the enormous efforts of doctors, rescue workers, and other medical professionals worldwide, the global death rate remains constant at 100%. We are not getting out from underneath this cloud. We have to figure out how to live with it and to die with it. So where do we look for hope? The Bible has some wisdom that applies. We just heard the great story of the prophet Ezekiel prophesying to the valley of dry bones, trying to give hope to a people who were lost. And this skeletal metaphor projects a sense of God's presence right into the valley of the shadow of death. And these were people who knew death. Israel's collective story began in Egypt, in slavery. They were freed, but by the time Ezekiel came around, they were enslaved once again in Babylon, and their home had been destroyed. We tend to think of life's consequences as the result of our individual actions, our choices. That is not what Ezekiel experienced. A catastrophe had occurred to the entire nation, regardless of people's individual behavior. And what was his prescription? Just breathe. Eleven times the words breath, spirit, or wind show up in this short passage. And that's not a very good translation, breath, spirit, and wind, because the Hebrew for these, this word is the same word, for, for these words is the same word. Ruach means breath, spirit, and wind. Together it occurs almost a thousand times in the Old Testament. Ruach is the wind that sweeps over the face of the waters in Genesis 1. Ruach is the breath that God breathes into the soil from which humanity sprung in Genesis 2. Ruach returns at the end of the Torah in Deuteronomy 34, the scene in which Moses dies. The Bible uses very particular language. It describes his death as all pi Adonai, which means he died by God's mouth. A rabbi, uh, Oren Hayen, says this about the passage. Mouth to mouth, the breath of Moses is drawn in and subsumed into the breath of God. 
God tenderly inhales Moses' final breath and then pauses. So the very first verse of the Torah begins with God's breath coming into humanity. And the very last verse of the Torah ends with God's breath returning from humanity to God. This is the foundation of Judaism and of Christianity, the Torah. This is often unfamiliar to us because ancient Judaism lacked the concept of a soul. Apparently we get that from from ancient Greece. In Judaism, when God's breath is in us, we are alive. Our bones and our sinew and our heart, they beat and move and love. And when God's breath is exhaled, our bones collapse. Our breath returns to God. But this is not the bucolic heaven that Christianity later projected onto the Bible. Judaism was much more comfortable with ambiguity than modern humans are today. Why was that? Well, first, they lived with a lot more ambiguity than we did. Second, they seemed to get through it in part by sticking together. Ancient Judaism, like many ancient cultures, was much more communal than our lives today. There wasn't a very strong concept of an individual. In in the language of uh, Ezekiel, he doesn't speak about individual bodies coming back to life. He speaks about a nation returning, a vast multitude, the whole house of Israel. Israel's relationship with God is national in scale, not individual. One of the things we all have inherited from the Enlightenment is this idea that we need to individually work out our salvation in fear and trembling. That was not a concept they had back then. Jesus came along a few hundred years later, and he lived in a world in which God's breath was all around him and his community. Ezekiel's theology is what Jesus knew. And here we get the story of Lazarus, the great story of Lazarus, where Jesus reanimates Lazarus by bringing the breath of God back into him. We hear this story and we think, well, this is great. This is, this is certainty. Jesus can just snap his fingers and there's a magic trick and, and everything will be okay. Everything will be just like it already is. But that's not Jesus. He was much more comfortable with ambiguity than we are. All you have to do is read the Gospel of John and you realize it's very ambiguous. He says things like this, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Those words are freighted with history and theology. Those first words, I am. This is the seventh time in John's gospel where Jesus identifies himself in that formula. Those are the very words Jesus used 
when he reached out to Moses through the burning bush to say who he was. Moses, who inhaled and exhaled God, knew God as I am. I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me. Believe is a tricky one for us. It's not a, it's not a very good translation either. A better concept would be an exchange of hearts or an exchange of breath or singing from the same hymnal. You get this sense when Jesus says believe that a relationship with God is relational. We get mixed up and entangled in God. And then just to clarify things, John says, even though they die, and then we'll never die. He's trying to have it both ways, clearly. John doesn't seem to care about the details of what happens to us when we die. He is content that we are entangled in a relationship with God that somehow begins here and now and stumbles into the future beyond what we currently know and it's not just us it's our whole community trying to work this out and support each other together so in this sense the story of Lazarus is a parable for the joyful and maddening finitude we carry towards an infinite God Ezekiel reminds us that we live and we die and throughout we carry God's spirit, God's breath, God's wind. What's another way to say carrying God's spirit within us? Inspired literally means spirit within. We don't come to the Bible for certainty, we come to the Bible for inspiration. For God's spirit within us. We come to the Bible for hope. The Bible is not very good at certainty. It's a terrible biology textbook. And it's not a catalog of magic tricks. It is the story of hope and community. So as we make our way through this Lent, walking with people who are grieving, Remembering people who have died, trying to help out some of our vulnerable neighbors in the shelter, may you too be inspired. May you carry God's spirit within you now and into the future. Amen.